All right, good morning. Oh, man, you guys. The Padres beat the Dodgers. Good morning. That's better, right? I see, I see we got a Padres right there on a shirt. I, someone asked me last night, said, are you going to wear, like, Padres to preach? And I was like, I mean, I think that'd get people encouraged, for sure. Be distracting. Uh, but we are talking about confessing sin. So I should have worn maybe a Dodgers jersey or something. Maybe. <clears throat> are there Dodgers fans here? This is a perfect sermon for you to hear, confessing your sin. All right, thank you for being honest and raising your hand. We all know who you are now. Well, we've been walking through praying the Psalms, and I think it's it's so important. Each Psalm that we talk about is, it's, it's revealing to us how we should think and respond and act in light of everything in our life. Last week, we talked about sorrow and how the pain in our life, what it looks like to react and reach out to God in the midst of our pain. And in this week, we're looking at what does it mean to understand and reach out to God in the midst of our sin. And this is a, this is a tough passage. I think, I don't know if Kenny plans it that way each time uh, that he asks the youth pastor to come talk, but uh, I'm going to try to give it as, we're going to talk about it in a PG way. Uh, there's still some young people in here and people that maybe have never read the story that's behind this psalm, uh, but it is a, it's a difficult subject of understanding and dealing with our sin and, you know, I might make a joke and may, make light of uh, Sin being a Dodgers fan. I think that that's true, though. But um, all of us, in some way, do make light of our sin. Or we try to explain it. We try to push it away. We try to give reasons behind what's going on in our life. And that's not a new response. And we see in David that it was a response that he had to his own sin, outright ignoring it or not even seeing it at all. And so as we see, read this psalm together this morning, and we talk about this, oh, let us understand this is David's prayer, but as every psalm is a prayer we can pray ourselves, but also learn from and understand what does it mean to think and respond in the way that God would have us. So if you want to read with me, I'll read through Psalm 51 together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. 
O God, O God of my salvation, in my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my, tongue, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Please pray with me one more time. God, please lead us this morning through this passage and be a part of our time as we look at your word and understand what David was speaking to you and what you are speaking through David as you inspired these words and as your spirit is with us today. Anything that's said this morning, if it's not of you, may it be pushed aside in our minds, but if there is things from you this morning that the spirit wants to work in our hearts, would you have those sink deep into our hearts, Father? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the question before us this morning is, how do you feel about sin? How do you feel about your own sin? Or maybe, how do you feel about other people's sin? What is your heart's direction when you feel and hear about sin? Because this morning, this is one of the few Psalms that we have a real specific idea of what was going on when David wrote it. At the beginning of the passage, before the verses start, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And so we know exactly in the story of David where this falls. And so if you don't know it, I'm going to tell you that story. And again, try to be in a PG way. I listened to a couple other pastors uh, talk about this passage, and I was like, I don't know how they're saying that on a Sunday morning. Uh, But the fact is, is it's in the Bible. And so hopefully you could connect the dots if anything, I'm being a little too PG for you. But the story starts is that the armies of Israel are out in battle. They're, they're, They're out fighting against another army. And while the armies are out there, David is at home. He's not with the armies. He's not leading them as he normally would. He's at home. And while he is there, he's standing outside and he looks from where he's standing and he sees out on top of a roof a woman who is bathing. And he tells those around him, he says, I want you to bring her to me. And so he commands them. They go there. There's no questions being asked. A a command of the king has went out and they bring her to him and This woman is Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of David's top generals. And if we look back in the story of David, Uriah is one of David's close friends and generals because he's one of the mighty men of David, of whom when David just asks, he wishes to have a drink of water from this well from his childhood, Uriah is one of the men that go and fight a whole army by themselves to go get David a drink of water. So this is not someone who David wouldn't know anything about. And so he calls Bathsheba, and by command she comes, and they conceive a child. And in that moment, at least something of David thinks that this was not the best decision, so he tries to cover it up. 
And to try first to cover it up, he says, well, I'll just call Uriah home. And if he comes home, it'll be enough of a timing that they'll think the baby was his. It was Uriah's child. But the problem was, is Uriah was a man of strong character. So when he got home, he didn't actually go home to his, to his bed at home. Instead, he slept uncomfortably because his men were still out on the battlefield. And he didn't want to sit at home in comfort while the men underneath Uriah were still in battle. So David's first cover-up plan didn't work. So then he thought about what he should do at that point, And he came up with only one option to cover this up. It would be that he would have to legally marry Bathsheba and then no one would have a problem. The problem was she was married to Uriah. So David told his other generals to command that Uriah and his group would go to the front lines where Uriah would surely die. And the problem is David's plan worked out perfectly. That's exactly what happened. Uriah got killed, David married Bathsheba, and now she's pregnant, and that's the end of the story. He got away with it. I mean, who is going to know? Who's going to say anything? It's the king. It's the person in charge of everything. It's the person of whom God has placed his blessing on. If anything seemed funny, I mean, everyone just kind of went, ah, well, I mean, I guess this is what happened. But the prophet of God, Nathan, knew And Nathan went forward before David and told him about a situation that he needed David's help figuring out. Because David was the king and he knew God's law, he wanted to have David tell him what they should do. And so Nathan said that there's this uh, couple of guys, one of them has a big huge farm and they have loads and loads of livestock and animal, and one of them is a pretty poor guy and he has one, he has one sheep that he loves. He loves it so much, his Facebook page is full of pictures of the sheep. He's obsessed with it. Like he thinks it's the greatest thing, so he puts hats on it, whatever. He loves this sheep. And then he says, the problem was, is that this guy over here that has all of the livestock, he wants that guy's sheep. He wants it. And so what he did is he went over there and he stole it. He stole it, he took it, and then he killed it, and then then he was gone. And David sat there, And he said, well, what's the big deal? He wanted it. No. David said, that's unbelievable. He's enraged by this. He, He wants immediately to call this man to justice. He wants this guy to pay. He wants this guy to be put to death for what he did. He had so much and this guy had nothing. And then from outside the story, we might think, well, that's that's ridiculous. But it's not. Because that's how clouded we can get about our own lives and sin. Because Nathan looks at David and he says, you are the guy. You're the rich man. What you did to Uriah and Bathsheba, that's even worse. This is what you've done. David, do you see it? And it's in that moment that we see that David sees it. Up to that point, as commentator says, he's just walking along as if nothing has happened. That, that he's just responding to what's in front of him. And that's when we see David's heart is moved. But in the story, something interesting happens that it says that David uh, realizes what he's done and then he uh, asks for forgiveness. He repents. And then God says, he's forgiven. It's good to go. 
And the story moves on. I mean, it's, it's not, there's no clapping, but it's as quick as that. And I don't know about you, but in the terms that I describe that story, it's a very nice way of putting it. Because the fact is, is he forced a person to come to his house of whom he then conceived a child with and then killed her husband. It's not just something that says, hey, good job, it's okay. Well, he feels bad about it now. So something else had to happen. And luckily, Scripture gives us Psalm 51 because we see what actually is happening underneath that. What actually happens with David in him understanding what happened to him and what is happening to all of us in our hearts. So when David opens this psalm, it's at the point that his heart has shifted and now he's begging for mercy. In verse one, he's crying out and asking for the help of God to forgive him for what he's done. And so for you and I, and on your outline, it says the first step in dealing with our sin is seeing it as sin. The first step is you have to actually see your sin as sin. And that, for some of us, maybe is a difficult place to start. Because David was living like he didn't think that he had done something wrong. He was still bringing judgment upon this other case that Nathan brought up. He still understood the law of God. Just something in his mind had clouded him to thinking that what he had done, well, well, wasn't that big of a deal. Or it just, you know, you didn't understand the full context of what happened. Now, the commentator puts it like this. is in all probability, David continued to, be, uh, to, to pray, to engage in acts of worship. He aimed at conforming his life to the law of God. There's no reason to think otherwise. It's, it's instead that he was just possessed by this spirit on one particular point, and he was under a fatal, fatal insensibility to his present exposure to divine wrath. So this for us is, is an unbelievable thing that we could, we would, hopefully all of us here would never even imagine or think would be possible for us to do. But if you think for his time, there probably was something in his culture that if a king or a warlord or someone who is in control would do, they could do whatever they want. And David was a good king. He never did anything like that. And this was the one time that he was exercising what every other king would do all the time. It wasn't something that he was doing always. It was just this one thing, and he was the king. And why is it that strange that he would tell the forces to move forward to do something else? Why is it that strange that he decided to stay home? He did every other battle. And he wanted something, and he was the king. Why would the king be denied anything that he wanted? And for other people, for other cultures, that is the way the kings acted. They did whatever they wanted all the time. And so... For David, he is clouded on the morality of that. Because the fact is, is around him, the morality said, it's probably fine. The kings could do whatever they want. They're the king. The problem is, is to realize sin, is to realize that we don't get to make the rules. Now, none of you in here are kings, so you're not making rules for other people, but you do think you're the king of your own life, the king or queen in control of your own morals. And if we live like that, you will not see your sin as sin. You'll just see whatever you want to think sin is sin, and you won't do that stuff. This, the stuff that maybe is really easy for you to not do. You go, oh, yeah, it's pretty easy for me to tell the truth because I don't do anything wrong, so pretty easy. I, I, I do that really, really great. But anger, you don't understand. People just don't listen to me, so I have to yell and I have to curse at them. That's the only way I'll be hurt. It's different because, I mean, what everyone, I mean, well, you know, words change all the time. It's okay that I talk this way to other people. 
whatever it might be that you describe, if you are the one deciding what it is, you can be just like David. Do whatever you want. But the problem is, is that Nathan comes in through the grace of God to give him this simple equation, this simple morality test to say, what do you think if somebody who had everything took something from somebody who only had one thing? And you go, well, that's obviously wrong. God hates that. God said that we shouldn't covet our neighbor's stuff. And then he goes, yeah, duh. And that's when it clicks. And so for you and I, the point of uh, the beginning start, the starting point for all of us in understanding our hearts is that we have to see sin as sin. And how do we grow that into ourselves is what we're doing now, learning the Psalms, learning the way that God has called us to think about sin, about our lives, about how we should, our emotions should look, is that we need to have these things. And so a a quote on your outline says that praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. Now this is not to say that David wasn't praying at all. But clearly David was not simply leaning upon the understanding of God. When we pray, when we truly pray and ask God, I want your understanding, what we are saying is, God, I don't want to go by what makes sense to me, but instead, what you say is right. And as we move through to the next verse, we see that the realization David had done this evil and it broke him, and that's what begins his confession. On your outline, our confessions begin at our point of desperation, David now realizes what he did was wrong and he is completely crushed underneath that weight. He realizes, first and foremost, what he did to his friend. And he sent him to die. This person that would have died for him willingly and has already done that, instead David stole what wasn't his and had him killed. And then also what he did to Bathsheba by killing her husband and stealing her away and forcing her into his home. So he is crushed under this reality and realizes, I can't fix this situation and I can't fix myself. I need God to step in. For you and I, that is the place where we need to begin. Probably every day we need to begin in that place that goes, God, I make a mess of things when I do it my own way. When I try to live my life in a way that just makes sense to me, I make a mess. God, I need your help. I am desperate for you in your leadership, God. And so in verse three, we have, I think, what is a first step of understanding a way of confession that, that uh, David gives us. In verse three, he says that this sin is haunting him. And so the first idea I want us to think about is that you can't escape sin. You can't escape the sin that is in your life. Sometimes we think that we can. If we hide from it enough, if we, if we just kind of push it to the side, but once it's revealed to you, once the Spirit actually reveals it, like Nathan did for David, you can't escape the reality of what you've done. Now, right now, uh, I don't know what you guys all call it, scary season, the spooky season, people are putting stuff in their yards, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call that in your family, but one of the things that exists right now is haunted houses. Now, we don't have to raise hands to all the sinners that went to haunted houses, but uh, whatever the theology is of that, I, I do like, I'll be honest, right here with you guys, I like being scared. I like haunted houses. 
I like zombies, they don't exist, so it's fun if they jump out at you and try to eat your brains or something. But here's the thing. We might think that, hey, that's, you, you shouldn't be scared or something like that, but here it is right in the Bible. It tells us actually you should be haunted. Now there actually is some, some great like horror movies that are not about being scared by just like things jumping out at you, but it's actually about people being haunted by their mistakes, being haunted by someone that they killed, being haunted by the loss of a life that they didn't live, being haunted by so many things, and that's actually what we're supposed to feel. When we actually realize what sin has done in our life, we are supposed to feel haunted by it, that when we walk through a door and we turn around, we see an image of ourselves, and we see us saying those words that we wish that we could take back. When we turn around the corner, we see a moment when in anger we were yelling at our family and we said things that we thought we would never say. And we look at that and we are haunted by it because it scares us that we did that. It scares us that that was in us. Now with the gospel, we don't stay there. But if we never get there, you don't understand sin. Because once you realize what you have done in light of God's news and his law, it should scare you when you see what you are capable of. And that pushes you to need help when you realize that is who I am. I can't help myself. And in verse four, when we continue on, it says David is understanding who he actually sinned against. So the next step is that we need to know who your sin has harmed. Who your sin has harmed. Now, when we look at the, just the front of this verse, for some of us it might seem like a cop-out, or you might misunderstand it, because you're going through, and after hearing the story of what David did, and then you read the verse that David says, against you, God, and only you have I sinned, you go, um, David, I'm pretty sure there are some people involved in there, bud. Uh, like, I don't know, your friend who you had killed, or maybe his wife, but we see, if we think that that's what David's referring to, we, we would be right in thinking that he's forgetting some things. But the problem is two things. First, this psalm is a confession to whom? Not to those people, it's a confession to God. He's writing to God saying, I've sinned against you. But then how could he say against you and only you? Well, it's because throughout scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is a clear understanding that God's law, when we break God's law, we are harming other people. The Ten Commandments, almost every single one of them, other than idolatry, are about harming other people. And God says, you break this command, but you sin against me. That's because sin, by definition, is a theological idea. Sin is by definition, about doing something that God said, don't do. Now, our sin almost always harms other people. We can injure with our evil actions, we can hurt other people, but we can only sin against God. Now, when you define sin of saying, hey, this person made this rule, I, I sinned against them, you can say that, that's not necessarily wrong, but you did, you harmed them with your sin. But because God has made the rules, he said what was right and what was wrong, you sin against him, and against him only, because he's the one who said, what is morality? Like I said before, culturally, what is right or wrong or what is okay is gonna change a lot. For kings, 
It's going to change. What was accepted for kings to do, he might have not actually sinned against the, the code of other kings. David did. But you know who he did sin against? God. Because God told him what he was supposed to do. God told him not to covet his neighbor's wife. God told him not to commit adultery. God told him these things. And so, yes, he harmed. He did great evil to those people. But this doesn't mean he's saying, well, I have to make no amends and there's no punishment for me. No. In that same passage, God says, there's big punishment for you, bud. The baby that would have been born dies. You might think that that's, that's more on, on the child or not, but that was a huge loss. David, David felt that. He felt that the pain of that death was on him. But then not only that, but then his kingdom would crumble. All of his children, his other children, would all be affected by this sin and there would be strife. They would fight each other. There would be more similar sexual sins that happened to and in his family. That sin had grave consequences for him. But when he says, I sinned against you and you alone, God, he is telling us the reality that we need to understand is that I don't make the rules. You don't make the rules. You don't make up your own way of living or your own way of responding to people. You get to be angry, but this other person doesn't. No, it's what God says is what we're supposed to do. Anytime that we live outside the way that Jesus has called us to live, we are sinning against God and God alone. But also every time that we sin against God and God alone, 99% of the time, we are harming other people. And you need to know that and understand the depth that your sin can harm other people. And I'm, I'm saying all of this again. This is a whole sermon on, on basically sin. So uh, it's real fun. And I'm not saying it to just heap guilt on everybody. Be like, hey, you guys are all sinners. It's not unnecessary guilt that I want, but appropriate understanding of the depth of sin, okay? Following this psalm is, is, is so that we can understand that our sin costs. There's no such thing as private sin, and the fact is, in verse 5, he tells us our sin goes even deeper. You can see it on the screens. You, your sin is in your very nature. In verse 5, he says something that, again, we can look at on the face and get a little confused by. He says that, in my mother's womb, in conception, I was in sin. And some have, have over the years, I think, misunderstood that in, in really bad ways, where it's it's... It's not, I'll just say the things that it's not. It's not saying that childbirth is sinful in itself or that conception is sinful, to conceive it's sinful. It's not saying that David was born of adultery. There's no reason that we would think that that was what he was saying. It's not saying that unborn children are committing sins in the womb. This is directing us to an understanding that in Jesus and through the New Testament, we know that's so clear, is that we are born Sinful. We are born broken. We are born bent towards desiring things away from God. Our hearts are bent to desire affections that are not what God would have for us. And this is important that David realizes this because the fact is, is he, he just thinks, well, it was because I didn't go to war or it was because I didn't do this or just because I, I, I did that, that was the sin. He says, no. The problem is, is that, yeah, I did that thing then. But it was way before that I had never dealt with the fact that in my heart, I wanted that sin. In my heart, I was letting selfishness grow. In my heart, I was believing that I should just listen to myself and not the ways of God. And so, 
we are doomed to repeat every sinful action that we have if we just understand them as a mistake or as I shouldn't have been up on that roof. That was the big problem. I just won't go on roofs ever again. No, you will be doomed to repeat. You will find a way for that sin unless you understand it, that you are in need of your heart to be fixed. And I want to take a moment to just jump ahead in Scripture because I want us to understand that what David is asking, what happens for him, is a big deal in being forgiven, what he is forgiven. Because we can read that story and go, all right, well, he just felt bad about it, and then bam, he gets forgiven, and he goes. Because he does receive punishment in, in, that, in his life. But his sins are forgiven. How is that possible, the type of sins that he's done? Because I think that you and I could name a list of things that people have done and people get arrested for that we think there's no way. Or maybe that's a stumbling block to some people that you know to being a Christian. The idea that someone could be forgiven of the most heinous things. How is that possible? And we have a story in here of someone who we tell is someone who's after God's own heart that has done a couple of the worst things that you can do. And so if we look ahead, if we want what this the quote on your outline says, sweet shall be the rest if your heart does not approach you. Not, not reproach you. If we want that, if you want that feeling of rest, how do we get that? And I would say we look to Romans chapter three. Paul lets us know. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood to be received, not by works, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because God could not forgive him of his sins if there was not a full payment for that. Any judge that exists now, that if you relayed this same information, but not about David, just said that there was some guy who stole someone else's wife and then killed the husband, and then the judge said, well, he felt sorry about it, so it's all good. That would not be justice. That would not be a just judge. There has to be payment. You say, but no, he learned from his lesson. And you say, that's, I'm sorry, but you still have to pay the price, even though you learned, even though you'd never do it again, even though your heart is broken over what happened. The only way that forgiveness could happen is through a payment, a propitiation that could pay that bill. And God said he would do that for us. He will both be the just to carry out justice, to make sure that no one in this world will not get what they deserve unless their faith is placed in Christ because they can be justified. And no longer do we get what we deserve. And that might be, you might think that makes sense for me because my worst things that I've done is I'm mean sometimes and, you know, I cheated on a test in fifth grade. You know, it's easy for God to forget that, but this guy over here, this guy that's in prison for this, there's no way. But the problem is, is that not what, that's not what God says. What does God say he wants? He wants the heart. That's what he's always wanted. From the beginning of scripture, he was making a way to make us be back to what we were made to be. 
to make us right before him, to, to heal us, that he gave the promise that when sin entered the world, it broke everything, but that he said, I'm going to make a way, that someday you'll be able to crush the serpent, that all of these prophecies be able to come through because I want there to be a way for you to be the way I meant you to be, for you to be able to be with me. And so unlike, we can still pray this psalm. This psalm is so powerful for us to work through our sin, to see sin as sin. But instead of the hope that God would show his grace to us, we can go with full confidence that God will because he showed us how he would do that through Christ. Full confidence that if we place our faith in Christ, our debt has been paid and forgiveness is ours. And so now, as we see David pray through that confession, the true confession makes way for the forgiveness in those next verses, 6 through 12. And that's on your outline, true forgiveness, a true confession makes way for forgiveness. John Owen says, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. These verses here give us these beautiful pictures of being cleansed, of being made new, of being clean and forgiven. And in this passage, David is over and over telling us this is what happens when God's grace is given to you. And as Romans said, the reason that that grace could be extended to David is because God knew the sacrifice, the full payment would be paid and will be passed over those in the past that truly allowed their heart to rely upon God. And so in this forgiveness... In this being cleaned out, David mentions in verse 7 to be made pure with hyssop. This was a tradition that they would take that substance and they would go into homes. And these homes uh, that had either a disease in them or leprosy had been uh, in those homes. Once they were cleaned, the priest would go in with the hyssop and they would walk around. And then they would say that this house has been cleansed. You can move back in. You can come back in now. It's clean. And the thing is, is when, when, when David is asking to be made new, to be made clean, that is what Christ has done for us. After you come through confessing and realizing your sin, you can be confident that now what God says is that you are made clean now. Your sins are forgiven. So much so that when you become a Christian, your heart is made clean and pure with hyssop. And now God's spirit can dwell inside of you. We don't have to pray the prayer that God, please don't let your spirit leave me. We know that God, your spirit is living within me. It will not leave me. The result of this forgiveness, we see in the final verses of this psalm. On your outline, it says, the gift of forgiveness brings about the fruit of thankfulness. How David sees the, the change in his life, his brokenness is bringing about a new life in him. That when you work through your sin, when you take the time to not just go, okay, God, sorry about that, and good night, and go to sleep, but you take the time to work through what that sin is, where does it come from, how deep is it ingrained into me, that when we work through that and receive forgiveness, we are now naturally thankful. We are so thankful for what God has done that we sing his praises. <clears throat> Augustine of Hippo says that the confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. That when you truly confess, when you truly work through it, that the thankfulness and good works that come from that are the natural work. 
Verse 13, David says that he, he wants to use this knowledge of this evil, this sin, to teach others, to stop them in their sinful ways, those that are revilers, those that have turned away from the truth of God. He says, I want to tell them the truth so that they can turn back. And he says again that I could share your truth, that I could sing your praises. The natural result of confessing our sin is that now when we confess it and then are forgiven from it, then we are no longer bound by it. It doesn't have us stuck in shame about that way, but instead we're made free from that sin so much so that we want to be able to pull others out from it. That's the essence of discipleship of walking alongside people. That's, that's what I call each one of our leaders to do in youth ministry. Is not saying that you have everything all together, but it's that God has progressively continued to pull sin out of you. And now you are a few steps ahead, hopefully, of this person in their walk with Christ. And then you begin to pull that person. And then as I'm pulling someone along, someone else is mentoring me and pulling me along. We all pull each other along in this. I love the image that probably a lot of us have heard that the church as a hospital for souls. But the reason that that's so powerful is that is what we're doing. We come here not because we are perfect, but because we are broken. We come before God to continue to heal us. But if we want the true nature of our confessions and, and thanksgiving to pour out of us, it means that we need to start pulling others with us. We can see those caught in the same sins that we've been caught in. We can see others being dangerously close to being ensnared in selfishness. Those that have lived their lives only for themselves, that have just lived their lives for, for money at the sake of every activity or ministry or family. We can see those in the midst of that and not in pride to tell them, hey, you shouldn't do that, but instead say, I know exactly where your heart is at. I know, I know the feeling that your heart thinks that this is right. You think that this will fulfill you. But let me tell you, it will break your heart. That sin that you're running after, it's going to break you. But allow God to break you instead so that you could enter into a faith with him. Verses 15 and 17 is where the, the title of this sermon comes from. And it's the memory verses for this week, ones that I assume many of us know that God desires, what kind of heart God desires, one that is broken, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And the reason is, is the same as we've talked about over and over already, that in every instance that we've talked about, in confession, in thanksgiving, in, in forgiveness, those are all what a broken heart gives out of it. That's the heart that God wants. One that realizes that we cannot do anything on our own and that we desperately need him. But you might think this morning that the message applies to somebody else. That it definitely applies to David because, I mean, that guy made a train wreck of his life. He needs to be broken. But our broken and contrite heart is not something that we just have right when we become a Christian and then we're perfect and then we move on. That is the state of a heart that is before God. That is our continual state. It's not a state of, of, of weakness that we are always on top of ourselves thinking we're terrible. No, we are a broken and contrite heart. It's just leaning upon the power of Christ. 
And so this morning, I just beg that each one of us do not fall into the same trap that David fell into. Because he did the same thing that we often do. Excuse our own sin and then be in judgment of someone else's sin. The minute that we hear that someone else did something, we go, I can't believe that they would say that. I can't believe that they would do that. I can't believe that they would watch that. I can't believe that they would do those things. And the second that we are doing that, you better hope that God is gracious enough to just bring a Nathan to you. Maybe Pastor Nathan, I don't know. But bring someone to you to just say, hey, let me give you just a simple moral question. Let me just give you a little, little test. And then in that, you can realize, not to me. Jesus words it like this. He says, before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, remove the plank in your own. The picture is that God desires us not to try to be out fixing everyone else's problems, but instead realize that all we need is him. And in that, in being loved and fixed and forgiven through him, then we naturally go out and with patience and kindness and goodness, we are reaching out to those in the midst of their heart problems as well. Instead of David having an accusing heart of that other person, instead of David having a heart that was just seeking after his own desires, that was just doing what he thought would be right, what he wanted in the moment, we see a king that begged for mercy and a king that was broken. And so this morning, my prayer is that our hearts will be broken in this way. Not broken by our sins so that we live in shame. And then we still repeat the cycles of our sin because we feel so bad about ourselves. But a holy guilt that makes us realize the depth of our sin and the true promise that is in the gospel. The true power that is available through the spirit within us. That we are promised when we confess we will be forgiven. And when we are forgiven, we are given God's spirit to continue to live in strength. I pray that this brokenness would give us an ability as we leave these doors, that we see the world not just full of sinners who are doing things that we can't believe that they would do and they are disgusting, but instead we see a world full of hearts that are in desperate need of being broken in desperate need, that in those moments we are available to people around us when their sin inevitably breaks them, when their selfishness breaks up their marriage, when, when their cheating catches up with them, when, when something in their life finally crushes them, that we could come alongside them and say, there is someone who knowing what you have done wants to step in and give you healing. It's not just about saying you're sorry for this one action. It's realizing that it's deep within you. And there's really no hope for you to fix it on your own. Instead, there is hope through the God who desires broken hearts would be opened up so that they could be taken by our Father. And so this morning, I just pray that our hearts would be broken in a beautiful way for God. That whatever sin you may be dealing with right now does not utterly destroy you, but instead you use this moment to see it for what it is, to allow yourself to be broken by those actions, and then to confess and receive the forgiveness that is through Christ Jesus and the payment that's been made. And then with that, in thankfulness, you now offer your life again, over and over, to the God who is good to forgive. Please pray with me. Father, I again thank you so much for this morning and this time that we share together. Would you, 
as I prayed earlier, just take any truth that is from you this morning and put it deep within our hearts that we would not live comfortably with sin, but instead, with a holy guilt, we move towards you through the cross, that in our confessions, in our understanding of the depth of our sin, we can receive forgiveness and be continually washed clean and to live a life of thankfulness in the world that we are drawing others towards you, towards the only answer, the only way to live through this life in the way that you've called us to live. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I pray that for each one of us this morning from our passage, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from my guilt, O God, O God of my salvation. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We'll go in peace today and greet one another on your way out. Have a blessed day.